a ratio marketing podcast. You remember when we used to talk about growth at all costs? Um, and you know, the mega companies like the it was the uh, the user type model businesses, you know, that would say, let's go out and build a network, two-sided networks, you know, growth at all costs. We'll build the network and we'll monetize it later. Well, that kind of made sense for those types of business models to a point, but then it sort of trickled down to enterprise SaaS companies. And it doesn't really make sense for enterprise SaaS. So for sure, there's belt tightening and now kind of a, a balanced focus on growth and profitability. Have you ever wished you had a healthcare provider on speed dial? Someone you could call to validate your product market fit. Someone to listen and help you see your solution differently. Welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix, a podcast to help you see your market clearly. We dive deep into the challenges faced by healthcare organization leaders that technology has the chance to help them solve. It's all about gaining the kind of understanding you need to effectively connect with your market. Join us as we explore the healthcare market matrix. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Healthcare Market Matrix. I'm your host, John Farkas, and we've reached the end of a big year here at Ratio. And today's episode marks our final installment for 2023. We have had some great conversations over this past year. And before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment just to say thank you for such a great year. Our listeners and guests have made this podcast a thriving community. And your support really means so much to us. And I just want to say that we're grateful. As we look back at what has transpired over the last 12 months, I have no doubt that 2023 is going to be remembered as a groundbreaking year as AI has really clambered up the stairs to take center stage. And as we've learned to contend with things like the changes that the pandemic has hastened, I mean, persistent staff shortages, alternative channels of care delivery, and, and the rise of the healthcare consumer, or should I say the continued rise of the healthcare consumer. They're all issues that are being addressed by the companies that we have the privilege of collaborating with every day here at Ratio. We've had the chance to host experts and thought leaders and pioneers throughout the healthcare market matrix. We've explored trends and the challenges and the opportunities that we anticipate in 2024. We hope you found these conversations as enlightening as we have. And now as we launch into our final episode for the year, we're gonna take a look at healthcare funding which I know is on the minds in one form or another of many of our listeners. Christopher McCord is going to bring us into some great perspective and some crucial considerations as we move into 2024. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Healthcare Market Matrix. And I am excited for our conversation today. Here's, here's something I know. Um, anyone listening to this podcast likely is very keenly aware of all the movement going on in the healthcare technology market right now. Uh, we saw historic levels of investment through unprecedented numbers of deals in the, la in the last part of 2020 through the first half of 2022. And that has very quickly migrated over the last 18 months to some of the lowest levels in years. And lots of companies right now are running out of runway. Um, and add to that picture what the recent advances in the AI realm are hastening. And we are going to see 
plenty of change and consolidation over the next 18 months. Today, we are joined by Chris McCord, who has lots of perspective on this landscape. Uh, Chris is the Managing Director of Healthcare Growth Partners, and they're a leading investment and merchant banking advisory firm that are focused in this sector. They've closed over $4 billion over the last uh, over 130 healthcare informatics and digital health transactions. And uh, before Healthcare Growth Partners, uh, Chris worked with the Mercury Fund, which is an early stage venture capital group. And he also worked at BMG Health, which is a strategic financial advisor serving the healthcare provider sector. Um, also with KPMG, where he worked in the technology and corporate finance group. So he's got some pedigree in this universe. <laughs> he is an active mentor. He's a director and investor to emerging companies and is a regular speaker and writer in this realm. Uh, so I'd like to wel welcome Chris to Healthcare Market Matrix. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Hey, John. It's, it's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on, on the pod and uh, interact with you. I've always enjoyed our conversations. I, you know, one thing that jumped out when I first met you is, is you're one of the best listeners that I know. So it, it doesn't surprise me that you have a, a platform like this. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation today because perspective is certainly something that is, uh, is needed in our realm right now. And uh, I would love for you to share with our listeners just a little bit about healthcare growth partners and what do you see as different and unique about your approach? Yeah. I mean, first I'll comment on, on some of your, your preamble of the market here in the last few years. It's so we're in this healthcare industry, all of us and, and your listeners, and it's a, a market that is notoriously slow. Uh, but the markets that you're describing, the capital markets, the COVID, you know, the run up to COVID, the peak during COVID, the trough that we've been experienced post COVID has been a whipsaw. Yeah. It has. And it's unlike anything that I've experienced before. Um, you know, so if you kind of take that and you roll it back to when we started Healthcare Growth Partners, I say we because I had a partner um, who I co founded the firm with back in about 2006. That's kind of like why it's um, called Healthcare Growth John Partners. He's, he's been a, been a mentor um, to me and, and really helped me grow within the company. So we started the firm back in, in 2006. We're an investment bank, as you said. We focus exclusively on health IT and health tech-enabled services companies. So an investment bank is a big word. Um, I think it's a bigger word for what we actually do. We're advising companies on mergers and acquisitions and capital transactions. So mergers and acquisitions typically means one of two things. You're helping a company get sold to a strategic acquirer. In that case, we're often helping smaller growth companies sell to larger strategic entities, whether yeah. that's a bigger private equity-backed platform company or a publicly traded company. That's typically the profile mm -hmm. of an acquirer. On the buy side M&A side of things, we're hired by those bigger entities to make these usually kind of smaller, I, I don't think, you know, a $50, $100 million transaction is small, but that is that is smaller in the grand scheme of investment banking. So we're working these transactions that are typically a little bit smaller than your middle market investment banks focus on. Everything that we do is dedicated to health IT. And I should also mention the capital side of those transactions. We're helping companies raise venture capital growth equity or buyouts with private equity funds. So we, we started the company. I'll just kind of 
to get to where we are, I think it's, you got to kind of put the past into yeah, context. Definitely. Cause it's been, so, a, it's been a, a, there's a lot of context and uh, along that road for sure. And one of the things I've, I've always said, so we started this company and got it really going in, in a 2007. So, you know, at the time we're a small firm, we hadn't done any deals and, you know, it's really hard to, to get deals done, engage companies when you haven't, when you don't have a track record. So we're fighting to kind of get that track record in place. And what happens next is the Great Recession. So we enter into the worst capital markets in, you know, many say since the Great Depression. Yeah, it it was much more short-lived. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I think what that instilled in us as a firm was a tenacity to get transactions done. So we were able to get things done during that time period. And I think that this, this work is notoriously difficult. It has a reputation for a reason. Um, a reputation that we try to like differentiate from, a lot of sharp-elbowed, kind of blowhard, if you will, bankers out there. And we really try to be not that, you know, try yeah. to be authentic and really focused and, and dedicated uh, to our clients in, in like a truly passionate kind of way. Um, so that taught us, you know, from a macro standpoint, the Great Recession set the table for what occurred in the COVID era and the lead up to the COVID era. And there are two things that I think made that a really uh, ideal time for us to start doing what we're doing in health IT. One was the tenacity that we learned. The second was, if you think about the rebound from the Great Recession in health IT, the High Tech Act. The High Tech Act set the table for where health IT is today. That was basically for those either new to the industry or, or you know, don't totally remember that's all the meaningful use stuff that drove and promoted Lots PMR adoption. Yep. Yeah. So prior to that, you know, you were looking at like 80%, uh, you know, not EMR adoption. And then post meaningful use, you're at 90, 95%, you know, pushing 100% in acute care environments and pretty much across most care settings. Without capturing digital discrete data, you can't even begin to leverage the backbone of health IT. So that's kind of step one from a market standpoint. Step one from a macro standpoint is it began a 10-year cycle where Fed monetary policy was about as expansionary and friendly as it gets. We, we had 0% interest rates going on eight years from basically 2010 to 2018. And the cost of capital was next to nothing. Mm-hmm. So it created this explosion and quantitative easing easing was another program that the Fed put in place where they're just pumping money into the system. And I think all of us were looking at it thinking, how long does this need to go on to recover from the Great Recession? Um, And it, it really flooded the markets with a lot of capital and it changed the way the companies were valued and software companies um, were developing, you know, cyclically. Um, just because of technological innovation and maturation and adoption, um, while market valuations were really favoring those types of companies. And so we just saw this rising tide of valuations, company valuations, um, during that 10-year period. And so anybody that was kind of in this world of finance, uh, even housing, anywhere where leverage benefits a business, which is pretty much any business, yeah. <laughs> anybody had, who's trying to make growth happen, had an incredible tailwind during that period. 
Um, coupled with that on the health IT regulatory side was the, uh, I'm going to blank on the exact name, the 21st Century Cures Act, I think okay, it was. Yeah. So that was the one that promoted interoperability. So you think about meaningful use, that gets the, all the information in place, but it's all siloed at the, at the provider site. You put the Cures Act in place, now all of a sudden you get that data moving around. And that really lays the foundation for AI because you can't build AI unless you have massive amounts of data. And so the, this, all of the steps that kind of went into place during that decade set the table for kind of where we are today. Then came COVID. And COVID basically took all those trends and just put them on steroids. The stimulus, the monetary policy, and then the investment thesis around health IT checked a lot of boxes. You had telemedicine, virtual care models go explosive. Mental behavioral health became, you know, more significantly mainstream. Came out of nowhere thing. into some of the most uh, prolific focus that it's ever had. And exactly. And, you know, just every, every day I'm seeing more, you know, mental health companies get funded. And I think, my, my gosh, you know, how, how many companies does the market need here? But I, Probably I know no it's, more, but know, we, that's, an, that's, that's, that's something we're going to talk about. <laughs> yeah. um, and then you have the, you look at the vaccine, vaccine process and, you know, leveraging technology around drug discovery and drug commercialization and all these kind of things, clinical trials. And you look at the use case for health IT that was manifested through the COVID cycle. And it's, it's just empowered significantly. Um, at the same time, the valuations hit euphoric levels, you know, along with um, just the appetite for risk because of the amount of money in the system went crazy. Um, crypto, NFTs, you know, NFTs, like where, where's the latest <laughs> NFT the that back? you've seen? <laughs> so we, we were due a, a reality check and we got it uh, with inflation and, you know, initially viewed to be transitory the Fed reacted, you know, arguably too too slowly, um, which puts us now in the cycle that we're in today, which is one of the the biggest Fed hike cycles um, in terms of magnitude and speed that we've seen in thirty years. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, a, a lifetime of of anybody you know that's that's really actively um, in the in the workforce. Um, so it's an it's a new era. Um, and, you know, valuations reset, uh, capital has tightened, you know, part of the, you know, the Fed was pumping money in, now the Fed is, is pulling money out. And all of that, you know, tightens the flow and velocity of, of capital, which constrains, you know, most everything. Um, and we've seen it almost everywhere except the housing market so far. So we're in a new era. Um, doesn't mean it's the, the end of everything. It just means that you have to adapt. And, you know, that's sort of what, you know, we're, we're all trained and, and ideally, uh, you know, thoughtful about doing. Yeah, certainly what I've seen very clearly, and we've talked a lot about that and about this in our realm, <clears throat> you know, it's when, when, when you don't have to be profitable um, or you have a, a, a really long leash on profit, um, you can pretend that a lot of things are, things are going to happen. <laughs> um, it gives you, a, it gives you the opportunity to, to look at a really long runway and, and hope that you find the traction that you need. And some of what we're seeing right now is, 
is a combination. You know, everything I hear from pretty much every CIO, well, it is every CIO I've talked to, is we we've got to we've got to simplify our stack. You know, we we can't afford to have you know this huge number of point or near point related solutions that we're deploying um, that that are part of what happened in the midst of that, hey, we're going to practically give you this technology because we want you to to use it. Um, and we don't have to aff- we don't have to be, at, you know, we don't have profit as a motive <laughs> the way it needs to be in the real world. We're going to give you these solutions and make it as easy as it can for you to adopt them. And now they've, they've run into a challenge in being able to manage all the solutions they have, add to that budget constraints, add to that profit needing to increase. And so increasing prices on, on things to help, sus- help companies be sustainable. It's just, it's made it a really, uh, you know, uh, consolidation, constraints, uh, reductions, all those things are becoming real realities for these companies right now. Uh, no doubt, you know, and, and so you're referring on the the provider side of things, or it could be yeah, the payer, sure. or employer, you know, anywhere Any, where they're looking to do. Yeah, anybody that's trying to look at, That's right. And I think what you saw with that relaxation of capital flow over the last few years is a lot of companies were funded that really are almost like some of them were just modules, you know, yeah, in terms of features. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I guess you could get away with that, um, you know, with in, in that loose environment. And I think now it's a, it's a belt tightening period where, you know, we can, we need to correct for that. And it doesn't mean that everybody's sunk. It just means that you need to consolidate the market where the market is going to be harder to consolidate are those companies that got over their skis in capital and valuations and, you know, took that growth at all costs mindset. You remember when we used to talk about growth at all costs um, and, you know, the mega companies like the, it was the, uh, the user type model businesses, you know, that was saying, let's go out and build a network, two-sided networks, you know, growth at all costs. We'll build the network and we'll monetize it later. Well, that kind of made sense for those types of business models to a point, but then it sort of trickled down to enterprise SaaS companies and it doesn't really make sense yep. for enterprise SaaS. So, for sure, there's belt tightening and now kind of a, a balanced focus on growth and profitability. So we kind of jumped a, a little farther ahead yeah. sooner, but let's rewind a little bit and, and dial, bring us into Healthcare Growth Partners and some of your approach. Because you guys really, uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things I like about how you are looking at this is you really see this as a partner as a partner endeavor, you know, the, the word partner f- kind of filters through not just how you're set up as an organization, but how you work with the folks you work with. I'd love for you to, to take us in a little bit to your approach and how you, uh, how you look at relationships. Yeah. So we're in this industry, you know, by definition, we're an investment bank. And I, I, you know, when we did our last website, as you know, back in 2016, I, I didn't put the word investment bank on there just because I, I had such a vis- viscerally negative feeling about it. And then I conceded and I thought, you know, I've, I've got to do it because that's sort of who we are and what we do. And I can't deny that, um, that definition that we fall into. Um, but when it comes to all of the other sort of qualitative characteristics of it, I really like to think that we're the antithesis of 
an investment bank. You know, I think is as you guys are aware, the the industry just has a bit of a, a tarnished reputation um, in that you know there's always like the treatment of analysts, and you know I had a bad, therefore you should have a bad. You know, our mindset is okay. If it's bad out there, how do we make it better? How do we work smarter? How do we work efficiently? Mm-hmm. You know, respect the boundaries of of work and life. And you know, we kind of have this philosophy of we think a career should enable a person rather than define them. And if you get so focused on your career that it becomes who you are, there's some coolness to that because a career is a very important part of your life. But if it defines you and doesn't enable you to do the things that you're you know, otherwise passionate about, then that becomes constraining and self-limiting. So we kind of have this internal philosophy that we try to try to live by. Externally, um, so we've done, we've closed now 140 transactions. So those early days where I was saying we're scrapping to, to put some on the board to establish ourselves, you know, we worked through and then we have got, you know, had very steady, solid inertia ever since then. Um, so that experience is hard to replicate. Um, and we've gained that experience through kind of our more strategic philosophy, which is, we're very disciplined on the number of engagements that we take on. So that's huge. In this world, we find investment banks will spread themselves too thin and they'll go for batting average. We stay very focused and we try to close almost everything that we take on. So if you go to investment banking website, you see all the tombstones. There's selection bias there because what you don't see Mm -hmm. are all the tombstones for deals that didn't close. And so unfortunately, it doesn't make that point of reference very transparent. And then we try to live by the golden rule of advising clients the same way that we would advise ourselves. And in this industry, it's hard um, because you're, you know, imagine trying to tell a company who's thinking about selling what they're worth. There's a strong temptation in this line of work to inflate that number, to tell them what they want to hear to win the business. And we don't think that does anybody any good in the long run. So we try to be very candid in the advice that we give. There's no perfect way to value a business. It, it is an educated guess at the end of the day that takes into account a number of different factors. So, um, you know, we can't say that we're right 100% of the time, but we've been, you know, we kind of look back on it. We've been pretty accurate with our assessments. And, and part of that is we're very data-driven. We have a, a proprietary database that we keep and, and track regularly. And, you know, we, we keep a long-term orientation too. You know, we're not focused on having to get deals done. If the right answer is to walk away from a deal, which very much can be the, the best thing, you know, that's the other problem with this model is we're paid when we close transactions. And sometimes, you know, kind of counter to what I was saying before, the right thing to do is to not close a transaction. That's in the best interest of, of a client, which means we walk away with nothing but our client has a better potential to create more value in the future. And so you just, if you just kind of do the right thing, you know, in a firm like yours and a firm like ours, you really only have one asset besides your people and that's your reputation. Yep. So from that point of view, I think we couldn't be more aligned with our clients and, and the work that we do. 
Yeah, I know that that's a big reason that I, you know, Chris, I feel like you and I resonate well because that's that's certainly our approach, right? I mean, it, it doesn't make sense when you're in a service-related organization and and you're being paid to provide something meaningful. Um, making sure that meaning aligns is really important. You know, the it needs to be aligned on all sides, and the moment it's not, you know, we we one of our one of our guiding principles is same side of the table. You know, we, we see ourselves on the same side of the table and any of our clients. And I know that that's how you're viewing it in the context of your relationships. It really is uh, building that trust, building that character, that integrity in the context of what we're doing. It's so important because that ends up being a big part of why you stay around at, at the end of the day. Um, so I know that that's been yeah. something I've enjoyed about how, how you've looked at it. Um, and, and I might just piggyback on that, and you may feel the same about this, but you know, working with with individuals, if you especially if you're working with, say, like a founder back, you know, health IT company, and helping them kind of with their their branding and marketing footprint, it's so gratifying uh, to work with you know that that level of passion, get to know those kind of people deeply in these like complex situations and relationships, and in our situation when you're dealing with a an entrepreneur who might be letting go of his company. This might be the biggest wealth event that they ever have in their lifetime. You know, those two things taken together are in, insanely emotional. Mm -hmm. And the transaction process itself is, can be very adversarial, you know, for reasons that we often can't control. And to try to contain those emotions and, and work through that with a founder oftentimes is, it's a really intense but rewarding process. And we've worked, I mean, I've been so grateful because we've worked with people who through that adversity, you know, they say it builds character, they reveal a character that's already been built that is just admirable. And so, it, I mean, it's, you know, those relationships and then the relationships within our team are, are what really, you know, make it worth its while. Yeah. I, I, I'd be curious if, if you could walk us into a scenario where, where you were jumping in and into a, a, a situation where on the surface really, really felt fraught <laughs> and you saw, and, and you were able to help. And, and I know that you can't get into specifics, but certainly some specific dynamics. Um, where, where you were not sure how you were going to see the pieces come together and there were, uh, where, where people were able to find a path to the high road that really enabled something, uh, something strong to happen as a result. I'm sure that you've, you've seen those, those scenarios <clears throat> and there's probably a few that stand out. Do you have, do you have a, a dynamic you could kind of talk us through? You know, I, I, I feel like I see pieces of that in ev every single deal mm -hmm. has just the landmines, you know, whether it's somebody thinks they're due a transaction bonus, you know, and a key employee, you know, thinks they're due a payday from a transaction or, you know, we've worked, I, one thing I, you know, to any of your listeners thinking about a deal, um, lawyers selecting a good lawyer is so important. You know, I've seen lawyers who are take any, you know, any risk in, in, and paint it as a worst case scenario. And so calculated risk, you're never going to sell a, a risk, a business and a risk-free transaction. And, and if you have an expectation as such, then you may as well not even try because that's just not, it's just impossible the way, you know, agreements are written. 
Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I probably can just speak to this at a higher level. Um, the bedside manner is really important. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about clinicians too, because as, as I've been doing this for a long time, you know, sometimes I find myself having to continue to effort to, to have the right bedside manner, continue to have the patients, you know, in situations where you feel like, you know, somebody should just kind of get it or work through an issue. And, you know, you got to think clinicians are in the exact same position and not only compare what we do to that. Um, and it really makes you respect and, and under, underscore the importance of kind of maintaining patient relationships in situations where, you know, you have a lot of relationships that end up being repetitive kind of over time, not, not to detract from that, but it, uh, you know, makes you think about you, clinical burnout and all these kind of things. And, you know, just to kind of like pivot on that context, I think, um, as we're all working through our careers and you look at different sort of functional roles, you can kind of appreciate, you know, the similarities that others might experience in, in what they're going through. Yeah, no doubt. It is, uh, <laughs> those dynamics and how you navigate it and how you help people through some of those sensitive moments and, and is just such a critical part in that, you know, again, that establishment of trust and the building of that relationship. It just is, uh, cause that's where, like you said, I mean, you're dealing with scenarios where you know, people, this is some of the most tuned, um, events of people's lives in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, we, we experience that on our end with you know, anytime we're dealing with brand work for companies, especially early stage, uh, earlier stage organizations where you're, you're, you're working on somebody's baby and, and, yeah. and the opportunity to help that, that being that company come out the other side of that process in such a, so much better, a, a framework, so much more effective a condition, um, and the trust that's that's required in that, and and the the process, it is uh, it is it, it, there's a lot of dynamics at play, and being able to handle that effectively is important. Ooh, I can imagine with the work that you're doing. I mean, it it uh, it strikes me as very hard to create a, a brand kind of framework that fits within that internal image that it a founder or an executive team may have in their mind about themselves. And maybe that internal image requires some, some migration to something a little bit different, you know, in order to be its most effective. And you've got to coach them away from that towards something else. And that I can imagine is, is a tricky process to navigate. It is. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm letting this conversation go this way because it's, it's pertinent to both of our scenarios. Right. Um, I know you have deals that you're looking at and, and the, as the conversation moves and migrates and, and forms and, and the negotiation back and forth happens, the picture that begins emerging is different than the picture that some of the stakeholders started with and how they thought it was going to roll. And, and the ability in that, like, cause some of what, like, I'll give you an example in our realm, we were working with, uh, and, and this is, this was a, a merger. Um, you know, it was an acquisition, it was an acquisition, but two very similar sized organizations coming together in, uh, to, to create what is a newer, better, stronger entity. 
And our work, as we as we got in it, we realized, okay, the shape of this, and if we brought these two entities together in the context of the shape of the market opportunity, what they needed to form and create, ideally, was an entity that that was a little bit more from from a brand perspective, ideally, to fit the market and reflect who they were, needed to be a little bit more aggressive than how they saw themselves. You know, so the 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 posture, the positioning, ideally, to fit the market and meet the need of the market, needed to, to be a little louder and and uh, and more um, aggressive than what they were comfortable with. And ultimately, they, we, we, you know, through the conversation, we, <laughs> we ended up pulling back from that because they just couldn't go there. You know, mm. uh, they, they weren't able to see themselves in that light. And I just had a conversation with one of their primary stakeholders at an event where we were, uh, where we were meeting and, and, and he said, you know, John, you guys were right. Um, you were right in what you were pushing us toward because we're in a position now where we're just not able to assert ourselves at the level that we need to in the market that we're in. And, yeah. and, and I saw that as a failure on our part because I thought, okay, what I didn't do is, some, uh, is push hard enough and, and skillful enough a manner to help them get there. I mean, there's a lot of headwind in it. I mean, there was. But, yeah. but we, you know, serving them in those scenarios means having means having some hard conversations and being being willing to say you know and and do a good job of spelling out the pros and cons and the and the eventualities and those are those are tricky conversations and it takes it it takes a uh, a very skilled patient and uh, sensitive hand to navigate those those scenarios so we describe so much of what we do as the balance between patience and persistence Mm -hmm. And I think what you're describing is one kind of silo of that when you're trying to negotiate or, you know, convince someone it's, to do it's something. About, yeah, it's, it's about how you navigate the change and, and making sure that the change that is happening is the change that needs to happen. Nobody likes change. I mean, that's the reality. It, it is uncomfortable for everybody in some form or fashion. Some people are a little bit more tuned and able and others, it, it's just really hard. And and understanding how to how to navigate that is a lot. It takes a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think you're you're saying you push them harder, and you maybe that would have been part of it. Um, but keeping it below a point of escalation where mm-hmm. it gets emotional. But then also, when I hear you talk, I think sometimes people need to come to their own conclusion. Yep. And you need to give them, you know, make your message heard, and then give them a little bit of space to process it. I know that that's how I can operate. You know, and might need, I, I take very much take an approach of sleep on it for a lot of different things. And, yeah. And the, what came out of that conversation we had is that we're, we're probably going to have a, another conversation at the start of the year about, okay, how do we do some of that now? Because yeah. they're, they're feeling need, they've lived the need for it. Right. And so right. now maybe they're going to be ready for it. It'll be interesting to see. Um, jump, let's, let's take a look at the market we're in right now. I mean, we're in, we're in, We've got inflation. We've got. We've seen the job cuts. We've got uh, that in, in the funder realm. We've got lots of firms that are writing down portions of their portfolios, uh, especially when we're looking at the hype over the last three years. Um, 
help us into how you're seeing what's happening right now in the technology market over the last few years. And, and, uh, and what do you, I mean, we talked about some of this already, but I I just want to, what do you see happening over the next 18 months and how, and how should organizations be uh, anticipating that? And, and, you know, part of what I'm curious about too, because I know there's people listening to this who are in companies that are really staring at some hard pictures right now. You know, that's going to be the reality. Yeah. And, yeah. and there, there's, I know there's companies out here who, despite how you would like to characterize yourself, you are a feature. And, and you're going to, your best case scenario right now is going to be figuring out either how to have a really strong partnership or, or get acquired by a company who can pull your feature into part of their, their platform. Um, set some context and, and how, how can we be looking at what the next 18 months is likely to uh, see yeah. happen here? This is, a, this is a, a weird market that we're in right now because you know, I, th- I think we're all sort of, we went from armchair epidemiologists to armchair economists, I feel like, <laughs> as a population, as we're sort of watching these changes go on and you know, kind of all undereducated experts. Uh, the, the, way we, the market has a lot of cross currents right now. You, know, you look at Q3 GDP was 5.2%, just yeah. revised to 5.2%. That's a crazy strong yeah. number. And if yeah. anybody told you at the beginning of 2023, no, that's where that we, we have a right Q3 now. GDP of 5% plus, they'd say you're smoking something. <laughs> so that was a, a complete shock. And it, it, you know, that's real economic expansion in the face of a lot of know, significantly rising rates. Yeah. At the same time, there's been a tech recession, no doubt. Tech valuations, for the most part, I, I would say for the most part have almost been halved. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I track the, the NASDAQ. I track the 10-year treasury as 10-year treasury is kind of my barometer for market performance. And the 10-year treasury has come off of its peak since the Fed meeting and Jay Powell's comments at the beginning of November, pretty significantly. But we're only back to where we were like in September. So you know, we still have a, a long way to move. The NASDAQ is pretty close to being within 10% of its all-time high. Its all-time high was like around 16,000 something. It's 14,000 change right now. So it's very high. Yep. But the NASDAQ is a market cap weighted index. So the top seven, the magnificent seven, make up 50%, 50% of the NASDAQ. So what you don't see in the NASDAQ index is it's all of the all carnage. The long tail. <laughs> yeah, huge long tail. And they've been just... Pummeled. Yeah, hammered. Yeah. And so the the pummeled side of the NASDAQ is what looks more like that universe of companies that we see in health IT. It's not the Amazons and the Google alphabets, you know, and the metas and the like, NVIDIAs. It's it's these growth software companies that are trying to balance uh, cash flow and profitability. Yep. And that market has come off the bottom, but it, you know, this is where the law of percentages comes into play. You know, when you're a low number to begin with, the percentage looks higher, but you're still way off from where you used to be. Mm-hmm. And so that I think the giant question looming for folks in the tech industry is where are valuations going to normalize? And I don't have a crystal ball answer to that question. I do think that for the first time in a long time, like during that 10 year low rate environment, 
a lot of things look very cheap right now. So in terms of kind of where we've been pivoting our business is let's get on the buy side and help buyers who are motivated to, you know, and see opportunity, go out and make some acquisitions in a market where, you know, valuations are, are suppressed and, and likely to, to come up over time. You know, part of the problem with this consolidation concept is a lot of buyers are risk off. Yeah, you know, so risk was not on. in a hurry to go out and, yeah, and put themselves yes, on the and plane. It's, and it's like, you, you think that the capital markets are so smart, but they were just pumping capital to work at these insane valuations in mm-hmm. 20 through 22. Now, and a lot of those potential buyers are in that equation, right? I mean, it's not like yeah. it's not like they're just sitting there with flush with cash, ready to ready to spend it. Yeah, and these private equity backed platforms are not immune to the interest rate cycle. A lot mm-hmm. of them have some degree of floating leverage. rate debt. Yeah, yeah, a lot of leverage for sure. And then the floating rate debt, and even just the interest expense change over time, unless they're hedged, you know, and, and which a lot of them are not. So you know, they're they're feeling that and that impacts their ability to pay their own valuations are more suppressed. Their leverage, you know, is, is up in terms of interest. So it just, it makes this consolidation. We need, what we need is this, the meter of risk, which was very, very high post COVID very, very low post inflation to return to a level that allows more transactions to get done. We're seeing that. Mm -hmm. I, I do believe that we're seeing, indications of that in our kind of we track trailing data which we'll be posting on our new website we'll be launching here in a few months um m a hit a bottom in around q2 of this year and actually has has come up pretty nicely from the bottom in terms of the volume of activity that's occurring out there investment continues to decline in terms of the the dollars of investment flowing into health it um, that came off uh, you know, was about 15 billion a year pre-COVID. Ran up to 40 billion yep. for kind of a period there post-COVID. Incredible, a crazy period. And now I think it's around. It's sub 15. It's lower than it was pre-COVID, but it's not like scary lower. It's not like we're at some fractional amount to what we were pre-COVID. And same goes for M and A. It just we had such a state of euphoria that you know where we were versus where we are feels so painful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all have to detach ourselves from that euphoria. And just well, there's a lot of stuff built in that COVID bubble that, yes. that yes. I mean, that's the reality. And there was a lot of people hired. There was a lot of investment made and, uh, and boy, we would have liked for that picture to at least have some semblance of what's still going on, but it's, it's not, I mean, so people are having to do a, they, they got, pulled into a really aggressive framing and now they're having to scale it way back to what's more, more reasonable. So we, we put in our mid-year market report that we think the market will enter a period of what we call, you know, we, we were comparing it to the stages of grief, which I think is capital markets participant. We, we chose that because we were kind of feeling it ourselves. Mm-hmm. And one of the final stages of grief is acceptance. <clears throat> and what we were grieving is the loss of free money. I think, if you just put it in simple terms. Yeah. And what we are accepting is that money, capital is going, the cost of capital is going to return to a more historically normal rate. And so we spent a decade plus in uh, unsustainable waters. And now the market just needs to realize it's not the end of everything. It just means that we have to sort of be able to function at what is ultimately kind of a normal 
capital environment. Yeah. So, so given that, you know, if, if you were to, if, if you look at the, you know, much of my frame of reference is just either the, like the, the floor at Vive or the floor at Hims or the, you know, where you, yeah. we've got all these companies and like we, we, we said several of which are, um, you know, we, we've got platform companies and we've got, uh, and we've got feature companies. Uh, what, what would you anticipate happening just practically? What, what are, what is some of the movement that you, in light of where the market sits right now and knowing that there still is, some, you know, it's starting to loosen up, but what, what do you anticipate? I know there's no crystal ball here, but if you were to look at the next 18 months, what is some of the movement that you're thinking is likely to happen? Just on a practical sense, looking at some of, you know, the number of entities that have been out there, um, you know, the number of little brands and, and early stage companies yeah. that are out of runway and not able to get additional funding. Um, what do you, what, what do you think the climate's going to look like for a lot of them? Yeah. So I, even in the years pre COVID, we were looking at the amount of funding going in versus the number of exits coming out of health IT and felt that there was an accumulation of companies in the market around this kind of feature versus company, you know, kind of thread that we're, we're talking about here. And always felt that there would be a moment of capitulation where you see kind of a, a wave of companies sell or, you know, just go out of business. Mm -hmm. And what I think history has shown is that it's a much slower burn. And the investors will kind of stand behind these companies and keep them alive. And one of the things that you've seen, and I think Rock Health published this, is the number of unlabeled investment rounds. So normally a company has a Series A, Series B, Series C. Well, if they're doing a down round from their Series C, that usually shows up as an unlabeled round. And yep. the, the share of those, I believe, is over 50% yeah. of investment rounds are unlabeled in health IT recently. So we'll just that's that, help that burn <laughs> of these companies being kind of kept, kept afloat for longer. And they're, they're hoping to kind of see through to the other side. So the question is, what's on the other side? And I think the other side will hopefully be, a, you need a market where buyers are willing to come back in. And I think that they will. You know, no one's going to sit on the sidelines forever. And every week, I feel like we're seeing a few more kind of market benchmark sort of type transactions get done that indicate, hey, there's a, a healthy, you know, healthier trend share of, of market activity coming in to the market right now. Um, and but the, in the meantime, those companies need to restructure. They need to to get their cost structure under control, under control, and yeah. and you know allow themselves to be marketable companies on the other side. Yeah, I think that that's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And, you know, because what I know is I, I know for a fact there's a from an investor perspective, there's a lot of dry powder sitting out there right now that there there is. Yeah. And and so as things start looking like identifiable bargains, <laughs> there, there's, you know, where, where people can look at it and say, okay, I really think this is a bargain and I feel comfortable with understanding the value and how this could end up being a favorable. Uh, I do think it'll end up loosening up increasingly more and because that yeah, risk equation will get too, better. You know, not, not all companies look the same in terms of their profile and how they're valued. Um, 
you know, we see companies that are valued based on their revenue because they don't have enough profit to be valued off a of profit. That's been the hardest class of company for us to value in this market. And that's the share of companies in the NASDAQ that have been hit the hardest, which is why they're the hardest to value. You know, previously companies might have been trading at six to 10 times, more than 10 times revenue. Now, hard to say, you know, still really good companies can trade at, at 10 times revenue, but it's a lot fewer. There's a, a, a lot less forgiveness for, for warts on a business than there was kind of in the, in the capital euphoria period. On the other hand, though, companies valued based on profit have not significantly changed in value over the recent period. Mm-hmm. So EBITDA multiples, which is kind of the metric for you know, valuing a company yeah. based on profit, are pretty consistent uh, today as they've been and you know, should continue to be consistent going forward. So that set of companies that have been profitable and will continue to be profitable, I think, are, are pretty well sheltered from you know, this, this, this whipsaw. So I know that you're... Uh, I, I, what do you see... Um... Yeah, I, I know that everybody in in, in the context of J.P. Morgan, we heard that there'd be a takeoff sometime in 2023, and it's it didn't happen. Um, we're saying, I mean, what are we seeing in your mind? Do you think the table's set for a pretty decent increase in activity in this in this you know coming in the first quarter? I so my industry is you know maybe eternally optimistic in what we do you kind of have to be but i i like to think that we're realists and i i do believe that directionally we're we're moving up in terms of where things are right now i think the fed has made it pretty clear that they've hit their terminal rate so the direction the rates will take in the next move is down the question is when is that going to occur and it will be dependent on inflation inflation data in the interim. But inflation data is tracking really, really well. And globally, too. Euro yep. inflation just came out much, much lower. So it feels like they're, we're getting a handle on this. And there's more and more pressure out there to cut rates. And that that's a big part of what is going to answer that question that you're yeah, asking. Yeah, the minute it comes down. Yeah. And so the question is, how quickly does it come down? And when does it come begin to come down? And I think that will dictate the velocity of transaction activity that you see. The, so it'll be the Fed has I mean, really made a fairly clear. simple equation then. I mean, that's a big, that's one of the big pivot points. Yeah. You know, so, so the, and the market tends to react quickly. Like look at post COVID, you know, we were coming off the bottom when COVID, you know, people were on lockdowns looking ahead to, you know, what's going to happen from all of the stimulus. So the market you know, moves, you know, cycles ahead of where it is at the present. So even the idea of lower, you know, rates heading lower as we get these inflation data points, PCE, CPI, you know, all the metrics that, you know, unemployment wages, all these things that are, are factors into, you know, the calculus around interest rates. As these trickle out and the market digests them, which, you know, they're continuing to do, in the Fed reaction to them, you know, you'll see movement. So it doesn't necessarily have to depend on, on Fed action alone. So I, I'm optimistic about 24. I think there's also an overhang. You know, what didn't happen in 23 will need to happen. You know, you can't hold companies forever. So there's a lot of force behind a snapback in activity here as we look ahead. You know, always geo- geopolitics. I feel like there's 
and, and we have an election year coming yeah. up. So I was going to ask about how you're seeing the election cycle and all this. Cause I think, I think, uh, it's sadly, I think, you know, the market is more numb to this geopolitical and political, uh, conflict. Um, and unless it's something that really looks like it's going to escalate and be disruptive, you know, it's, it's almost become more par for the course that I, I don't, you know, we'll see kind of how the election picture begins to unfold. Um, but so far, it, it's taken up very little share of conversation. So as you're looking at this next term here, are there companies or sectors that you're looking at as particularly noteworthy? I mean, there are. I'm curious your perspective on on what those look like and and where some of the the hot the hot segments are. Um, I'm guessing the letter A and the letter I might have something <laughs> to do with your answer. But um, but but talk about that. What are you seeing as some of the the places that are getting attention and are noteworthy? Yeah, I mean. You can't talk about this without talking about AI. Obviously, AI has been in the in the vocabulary for a long time. You know, you had machine learning, data science. You know, it's like different different words, sort of saying similar things as what AI is now, or AI in itself. I mean, we've met with so many companies over the years that say they're using AI, and it's really like a glorified <laughs> rules engine or something like that. You know, it's yeah. it's been it's different. It's kind of a, using term- AI is different than being an AI company, and I think the market yeah. is getting increasingly aware of what that difference is and the anatomy of it. It's important to know, especially from an investment perspective. You know, is this, for sure. Is, is this, are, when you say you're an AI, AI company, are you using, uh, are you just plugging in um, off the shelf open source or are you creating real knowledge and understanding and value in the context of what you're developing? So the thing I sort of wonder, I mean, a couple things, a few things related to AI. First of all, what really was the, the pivotal change here, obviously chat GPT, but what is chat GPT? It's, it's really large language models. And that that is the vertical of AI that I think in the last 12 months and probably rolling forward here is where we're going to be able to harness the most leverage from. And within healthcare, given the magnitude of unstructured data, free text, and all that kind of information that is you know, largely underutilized, it, it's going to be an incredibly powerful resource. Then again, I think AI to me is a little bit, a little bit like the concept of mobile where you're not a mobile company, you're not really an AI company. These are enablement tools to allow you to be the best company that you can be, you know, and drive your, your user engagement and, and productivity. So we sort of see AI as, as, as really being core to any business. And, and if a business is sort of purporting themselves to be an AI company, I almost look at that as a little bit dangerous because mm-hmm. I think, you know, what, what are you actually delivering because AI to me is not a company. It's a, it's an enablement tool. Right. Yeah. And, and it makes a difference how, you know, I, one of the gauges I'm using <clears throat> when I hear companies pulling that forward as part of their value proposition is okay. What is, yeah, I'm very quick to ask, what does that mean? How's that manifest um, in your value proposition? Because I, it, it's important that uh, first of all, you can't rely on that as a, <laughs> as a differentiator anymore because everybody's everybody's doing it um yes man the volume of ai deals that we we screen through every single day is just off the charts 
Yeah. Um, and last thing I'd say about AI too, is I, I kind of compare it to maybe autonomous uh, driving, autonomous vehicles, where you know we'll, we'll get to 80, 90, 95% uh, pretty quickly through it, but that last 5, 10% or whatever it is, is going to be a bit more challenging. And so you think about its use case and augmented through you know, interpret, interpretation services or whatever it is, you know, kind of looking over the shoulder of AI. You know, it, I think it'll be a, a nice right hand um, in the clinical setting, but maybe not. You know, you, it's going to be more functional where there's more room for error, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, for sure. What is um, as you you know, knowing healthcare as a sector is how outperformed the S and P five hundred by you know a couple times over the last thirty years. How does this outperformance shape your perspective on the sector? You know, on how resilient and enduring things are going to be, especially around the current market, you know, the market scenario. Yeah. It's an enduring sector for sure. Um, it's enduringly, you know, taking up a, a larger share of GDP, <clears throat> which, you know, helps. And maybe the right answer for it is at some point to take a smaller share of GDP mm-hmm. and be more efficient. You know, we, one, we, one we're going to value-based value-based care models. And that's hard. You know, you think about that politically, you know, to be a smaller share of GDP, to, to actually shrink a segment of the economy or have it grow at a slower rate than GDP is a really hard thing to hard. pull off. So you can kind of see the underlying challenge there. Um, you know, we, we think of this, we kind of bifurcate the healthcare market in terms of solvers and exploiters. Solvers are those looking for solutions to the benefit of many. Mm-hmm. And exploiters are looking to take advantage of inefficiencies to the benefit of a few, including themselves. And, you know, I think the problem is healthcare is a super inefficient market. Yep. And you have a lot of exploitation that continues to perpetuate rather than sort of solve for these fundamental problems. We think health informatics and the reason this field is so you know compelling is it's... It's exposing it's, things. <laughs> it's exposed... Yeah, exactly. That's a great choice of words. Um, you know, transparency... Is you know if you're able to capture data and you want to define value, you know values the optimization of cost and quality. So you can't define those metrics without um, without data to to get behind. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I'm hoping that the the tenure of the exploiters is going to be uh, it's going to be shrinking here in the. Uh, in this next season because the tolerance level is decreasing. I mean, it's, it's, and, and you're right. I mean, the, what we're seeing from an analysis, you know, and analysis capability is it's just highlighting a lot. Uh, and we were just sitting with a, a client the other day that has a solution around medical devices that is, uh, <laughs> is, is definitely highlighting some of the exploitation going on. Um, and they're able to, to, evolve some real transparency that is i'm sure has a lot of vendors going oh no <laughs> don't yeah don't that, don't make that apparent because yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic about the next generation um and you know that maybe a little bit more inherent altruism and and purpose that they want to have in the work that they do and you know i'm hoping we we see that in multiple industries obviously healthcare being one of the most important so how would you uh, advise health, health tech companies to prioritize their efforts in this next year? Um, 
to help ensure that they're they're resilient and set up to to uh, thrive in this next season. What do what are you seeing as some of the underscores? Yeah, I think you know a lot of fat was built into the system here in recent years. So I think it's just a matter of kind of looking internally <clears throat> at where they can be more efficient. And that doesn't necessarily mean headcount reductions. It just might mean you know do you are you using vendors or doing things that you know, really not generating a, a good return. So almost go back to like a zero-based budgeting approach, build it up and look at what you need for what you're doing and, and, you know, operate from that standpoint. That sort of ties into this kind of cash cash management um, side of things. Uh, I think the market will, you know, I don't, I'm hoping it's not just full batten down the hatches, kind of go into self-preservation mode. I think there's there's a lot of opportunity for growth. Um, in uh, you know market wide, so many different niches in, in healthcare and health IT to to chase down um, that um, I uh, I think uh, you know on that front AI enablement tools even mm-hmm. from kind of a how you're running your business there's there's a place for that and and I think you know trying to leverage technological innovation across the board for your own internal operations is is an important thing um, bringing on the right team. Uh, you know, I, I think just just continued blocking and tackling. In fact, I would almost go so far as to say the self-preservation mindset where a lot of companies had to recoil and some of them need to recoil significantly. You don't want that to get in the way of running a good business. And yeah. so I think maybe the market hopefully is returning to a more healthy standpoint that I kind of look at this as just just run a good business here and you know the results will follow. And just like we recommend everybody, don't build a business to sell it. Build a business to build a great company that delivers value to its customers and has a sticky customer and, and workforce. And the value will be a product of all of that. Yeah, there's there, that's clearly a theme that we hear. You know, one of the questions we ask a lot of the healthcare um, health system leaders that we talk with is what what do you want? <laughs> what do you want health tech vendors to know as they're interacting with you? And one of the things that they just, one of the very clear refrains we hear is don't come to us talking about, uh, about your, <laughs> your technology, come showcasing your value, you know, help us, help us understand how clearly you understand the value that you bring and, and hold that forward. Because at the end of the day, that's what, that's what we have to focus on right now. We, you know, we don't have budgets to experiment with. Um, you know, our, our, any spend we have right now has to be very clearly tied to <clears throat> real value that pushes the, the numbers in the right direction quickly. You know, not, not just, you know, we can't be staring at a multi-year return. It has to be there really fast. And we have to understand how you understand it and know that you know it. Um, that's, a, that's a very important underscore right now in this market. I think you hit on something that we we say a lot over the years is it's not the product needs to be good enough. You know, think about any sort of software company. It's not necessarily the best software that wins. It's coupling a good enough software package with a really good go-to-market strategy. And the go-to-market strategy is going to be communication of your value proposition. But to me, and especially in healthcare, it's going to be picking your lane in the market. Mm -hmm. This is a giant market and a lot of companies get enamored by total addressable market opportunities in the billions or whatever it might be. But if you're just trying to grow for starters, a 20 million revenue business, 
you know, pick a lane where there's going to be the least friction and go for it and serve your customers well. And your TAM expansion will occur more organically, organically as you just continue to, to drive value and, you know, have commercial success. But if you spread yourself too thin across too many different things, that's where I feel like you got to find the lane first. So you might have to do a little bit of, you know, um, market finding, discovery. Um, but once you find it, you know, I, I would argue, you know, don't try to be all things to, to everyone. Yeah, that's and especially know the dynamics with Epic and Cerner. You know, that <laughs> I, I know, you know, old pros listening to this, but I just, I can't stress enough in almost every single transaction that we do that has exposure to the provider market. When folks are assessing the durability and value of an enterprise, one of the first questions that they're asking is how is this going to kind of last over time in a world dominated, you know, Epic and, and I'll, I'll put Cerner in there too. Well, that is, that's definitely a good word. I'm curious as, and I'm, I'm very also aware of our time and we've spent some time talking, which is not surprising to me, but I'm, I'm curious to, for you to tell us a little bit about, you guys have a, a, a report that you guys, that you're putting out on a regular basis that I think has some real value. It's talking about value. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys publish and, and what people should know about it. Yeah. <clears throat> So we've been doing this for years and, and the report has kind of grown in, in terms of its content. And, you know, we're going to continue to, to refine it in terms of trying to get information that's most valuable to folks in the market. It's, it really synthesizes um, overall market activity that we think is relevant to participants in the health IT market, whether that's operators of businesses, investors, um, of, you know, in businesses and, and advisors and the whole ecosystem of health IT. And the way we approach it is we sort of ask um, ourselves going in, what, what's interesting to us and what are we curious about? And we kind of, and we'll get some feedback from folks who, who read the report and, and try to just answer those questions in a somewhat sort of conversational way. And it's fueled by a database that we keep where every single day, and I just scrolled through 119 transactions before we, we got on the, the line here. <laughs> where we are populating a database base with every single health IT transaction that, you know, I can't say everyone that's occurring in the market, but virtually all of them. And it keeps a finger on the pulse of the trends of M&A, capital investment globally. And this is a way for us to kind of take that giant set of information and, and make sense of it and share it out to folks so they can have a finger on the pulse of what's happening. And then while sharing along with that are more qualified observations of what we're seeing and dealing with in the market, you know, with the, you know, the theme that we're an investment bank. And so we're speaking to how are the capital markets, the investment markets, the M&A markets, um, what's the temperament like in the health IT space. And so talk about where people can find that, because I know that there's going to be some people interested in, in figuring out where to get a hold of that. Yeah, I point people to our website, hgp.com healthcaregrowthpartners.com. Um, thanks and to you. congratulations thanks. on having a three-letter domain.com. That's, <laughs> no, that, that's no small thing. We, we picked that up uh, around like 2011 or, or something like that. And I, I do love it. It's nice. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, thanks to you all, we should be launching a new site here. And the new site is going to be much more interactive where we're going to kind of publish some of the, the headline, you know, what we think is the most interesting data from our database on a, on a monthly kind of real-time basis. 
on on the site. Um, so it'll be much more interactive and fluid in terms of the information flow. And you can sign up for our research on the site. Uh, we don't spam anybody with anything but the research, and um, you know, just try to just keep it keep it simple and and focused, and you know, really focus on on you know what people need and want to know. Awesome. And that, that, so that's hgp.com. Take a look at it. There's a lot of uh, good insight in the context of that. And uh, I think that, the, that uh, there'll be a good resource for a lot of folks just to get that, an idea of, okay, what are some of those trends that are, that are clearly emerging? Um, Chris, I'm curious, and you know, we talked a little bit about the culture of investment banking or the expectations around the, or the brand, you could say, of investment bank- banking. And I know that uh, you've talked about somehow you look at that differently, and you know th- th- there's a there's an element of uh, of code breaking in that you're doing some things different. Talk about talk about how you've how have you seen that? You know how how are you looking at changing the game, um, and and what are you seeing as some of the fruits in that? Yeah, uh, I think. <clears throat> It's it you know the industry has a bit of a reputation for being self-serving and and like I said at the onset if if you're motivated by your reputation then you know you can kind of be 100% aligned and it helps to have drivers out there you know you can sort of purport to be as altruistic as you want but if you can find like real areas to align interests then then that's kind of the best way to to go about doing things. Um, as I mentioned, you know, internally, we try to create a culture of, of respect and externally, we try to create a culture of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want that ever to be interpreted that we are soft in the deals that we do. You know, we are extremely tenacious yeah. and, you know, fight on behalf of our clients. Many of our clients are, especially on the sell side, you know, these are folks who this is their very first transaction or meaningful transaction. And um, they don't have sophisticated operations within their business. And so we really have to roll up our sleeves. You know, I find that these deals are almost harder than the bigger deals or the private equity backed deals because they, they haven't had an entity kind of drop down that set of controls. And so we've got to kind of get in there and, and kind of prepare the business for the rigors of a process. And it's, it's really fun and rewarding. Um, especially, you know, I think what our model has done is it helps self-select working with like-minded kind of people. And, you know, that I think has made been the, you know, the the holy grail for us is, you know, working with, with folks that we, we have a ton of respect for and really are motivated to drive outcomes for them. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that, that when you are, I mean, when you see things that way, it just it, like we talked about earlier, it just is going to help help. The, it's going to help raise the water level for everybody. It's it's you know it's going to bring everybody to a better level, and I just think that that's a it's a critical perspective to hold. And in any of these scenarios where you've got where you're pulling together multiple interests, um, trying to hold that that high that that high line is so important and. Uh, I really applaud your your the way you are looking at that. I think it just is a breath of fresh air in a in a fraught uh, a fraught scenario for sure. Um, what are some of the 
to keep abreast of what's going on in this market, what are some of the channels, <clears throat> some of the conferences, the, the places that you're tuned into, Chris, that keep you, keep you on it? What are some of the things yeah. that you're listening to? For, for ongoing news, uh, my number one is HisTalk. And yep. you know, you can with HisTalk, there's there's multiple kind of themes that they'll they'll publish around, you know, general HisTalk, HisTalk practice or ambulatory AI, their interviews. You know, I'm I'm getting probably three or four emails a week from them with a daily sort of news brief or you know, kind of a market-wide news brief. And I just think it's hands down. We've been a sponsor of it, and I'm not even saying this because we're a sponsor. We're we're sponsors because we we love it and we want to support it since I think 2006, since the very beginning. And it's it's just an awesome source of information, of unfiltered and honest information in the industry. So you know, hats off to them for for doing what they've done. Um, you know, I listen to a couple. I, I'm going to say a podcast that some people may roll their eyes at: the All In Podcasts, which is. Um, you know, a handful of tech uh, entrepreneurs and, and private equity professionals just kind of getting together for both economic and political discourse on a regular basis. And I find that they're they're pretty thoughtful. And and I think what they do well is they, you know, they're thoughtful in their own minds, but they do a good job of synthesizing a lot of the information that's out there in the market. And that's that's one of the challenges these days. It's just there's so much information. Mm-hmm. Um those are, you know, those are probably my, my top two. I enjoy the Scott Galloway podcast, the Pivot podcast, which yep. I listen to pretty regularly as well. I'm sure that one that one might uh, strike a chord with you all in the in the marketing world. Awesome, those are good, definitely good uh, good ideas there. I I definitely have uh, benefited from his talk for sure, and uh, glad to hear you guys are aligned in that. Um, Conference wise, too, you know, uh, health kind of took it over from from hims these days, so. Health Vive conferences, you know, might get out to JP Morgan, a lot of glad handing at JP Morgan. So we'll, we'll see about that uh, and just go, go if there's a purpose, don't go just to kind of show up. I think the other conferences are just great to, you know, you can't beat a conference and just getting the volume of people in a, in a single space and just to, to say hello, even if, even if you don't have a super, you know, tight agenda. Awesome. Well, Chris McCord, I want to appreciate uh, you taking the time today and sharing some of your insight with us. Definitely check out hgp.com and what's going on there. Uh, The work that Chris and his team are doing to make meaning in the context of uh, the M&A space is really uh, making a difference and helping people into some good uh, interactions that are typically... uh, you know, definitely have some challenges associated with it. So I appreciate you and the work you're doing. I appreciate your willingness to come and join us today on Healthcare Market Matrix. Thanks for, uh, thanks for taking the time. John, I really appreciate it. You know, I, when I first met you, you, you struck me as someone, like I said, who listens, who's super thoughtful. And I can only imagine, well, I'm experiencing, you know, how good you are at what you do. So happy to, uh, to be in your ecosystem and you know, look forward to a long relationship. Thanks, Chris. Healthcare Market Matrix is a Ratio Original podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, then jump over to healthcaremarketmatrix.com and subscribe. And we'd really appreciate your support in the form of a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. It does make a difference. 
Also, while you're there, you can become a part of the Healthcare Market Matrix community and get access to courses and content that's created just for you by signing up for Insights Squared, a monthly newsletter dedicated to bringing you the latest health tech marketing insights right to your inbox. Ratio is an award-winning marketing agency headquartered in the Nashville, Tennessee. We operate at the intersection of brand and growth marketing to equip companies with strategies to create meaningful connections with the healthcare market and ultimately drive growth. Want to know more? Go to goratio.com. That's G-O-R-A-T-I-O.com. And we'll see you at noon central next week for an all new episode from our team at Ratio Studios. Stay healthy. All right, as we sign off for the year, we encourage you to stay connected. Follow us on social media, share your thoughts with us and let us know the topics you would like us to explore in the upcoming year. We've got a great network and we can bring a lot to the conversation. Your feedback is really invaluable to us. From all of us here at Ratio, GoRatio.com, we wish you a joyful holiday season and a healthy and prosperous new year. Thanks for being a part of our community. Until next time, stay informed, stay inspired, and take good care.